Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Well, thanks for joining us today. We've got a really informative show today. We've got Bob Whitaker, and he is the author of four books, co-author of a fifth. Three of those books tell the history of psychiatry. In 2010, his anatomy of an epidemic, magic bullets, psychiatric drugs, and the astonishing rise of mental illness won the U.S. Investigative Reports and Editor's Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Prior to writing books, Bob worked as a science reporter at the Albany Times Union newspaper in New York for a number of years. He is the founder of MadInAmerica.com, a website that features research, news, and blogs by an international group of writers that are interested in rethinking psychiatry. How appropriate is that? Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure. You know, and I have to be honest with you, a lot of people that come in to the clinic and they they start with a consultation, a lot of the reason that they come here is because they've been recommended to be put on uh, a drug for depression or anxiety. And I'm amazed, you know, we'll use seizure medication sometimes for, for different things. And their first question to me is, what do you think about that? And since I have a natural bias against medication, I have to be really careful on on how I I answer that question. But it sounds like that, you know, you've been thinking about and, and investigating that subject for quite a while. Yeah, you know, one of the, I think the things that's so, so, I don't know, tragic is the right word. I guess it really is. Is this decision of whether or not to go on psychiatric medication is not treated with with any sort of great sort of um, consideration because it's a profound thing because the drug is supposed to change how your brain works, so it's it's a it's a profound intervention. But often the pills are, and the recommendation are just sort of someone comes in has a little problem and next thing you know they walk out with a prescription. And I do wish the the whole context for around making that decision was better understood. This is a profound thing going on in uh, psychiatric medication. It is going to change your brain. And it's, it's meant to change how you interact with the world, feel about the world. And what we're learning, of course, is it can be very difficult to come off. So when people come in, I think you're very right to at least have people uh, take a moment and consider, well, what do we know about these drugs and what do we know about how they affect people over the long term? And one of the problems we have real quickly is in terms of even, so the first problem we have is it's it's not seen as a, a, a such a momentous decision, and it should be. The second thing is it's done in this context that, well, we apparently have some evidence that maybe there's some benefit over the short term. But people end up on these drugs for the you know longer periods of time, six months, a year, two years, three years, indefinitely. And the literature about that, there is literature on that, but that has never entered into the decision of whether to start the drug. And I just think in terms of informed consent, so people come into your clinic, you know, they should be asked, they should have a chance to know, well, what is the evidence for the short term? They should have some sense about what will the drugs do to the brain? And then three, what do we know about the long term? But that would be a true informed consent process. But right now, we don't have that informed consent around the use of these drugs. And why do you think that is, Bob? 
<laughs> well, yeah, because, <laughs> well, no, that's a good question. Well, I, the reason is, is because, I mean, it's quite clear. Is psychiatry long ago embraced the prescribing of drugs as it's, I'm talking about psychiatry as a medical discipline. It embraced the prescribing of drugs as a first-line treatment, and that became its product, okay? That's what the discipline sort of got geared up to do, was prescribe. And if we ha- and, and once that became their product, and it really became true following 1980 when they published the third edition of, the, of their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but really it goes back to the 19, late 50s, 1960s. They want to basically, even in their own mind, see these drugs as just naturally helpful and, and frankly, with very little risk of harm. And so that's the sort of mindset that they have adopted. That's particularly true around antidepressants. And if they really engaged with an informed consent process of what we were just talking about, it would really put a damper on people being so willing to take these medications. So... In a, in a commercial sense, is you don't go to a car dealership and they start telling you about the problems with the brakes or this problem or that problem with the car. You know, they're trying to sell you the car. And in essence, that's what the discipline of psychiatry, by the way, with a lot of funds flowing from pharmaceutical companies, and of course pharmaceutical companies are also trying to tell the same story, is there's a lot of financial influences who are just telling people that, you know, now, these drugs are going to fix something that's wrong with you. They're very effective, and the risks are not that great. So, unfortunately, there are commercial influences that have led to this sort of willy-nilly prescribing of the drugs and not a, not the prescribing of drugs within an informed consent process. And honestly, the reason that it's not done within an informed consent process is because, A, the benefits, even over the short term, over placebo aren't really very great, and B, uh, long-term outcomes are poor with these medications, and C, uh, they, there's just been they, there's been need to hide what the drugs do to the brain because you know we were told they fix chemical imbalances. That's exactly not true, and I really think if you had an informed consent process, the number of people taking these drugs would be uh, much much less. So that's why we don't have an informed consent process is because it would go against financial interests and the interests of a discipline that made the prescribing of this drug. It's, 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 you know, first line of treatment. That's what they do. They prescribe drugs. Well, I think you make such, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's an easy decision. Oh, well, you need to go on medication. And so many times because people hold their doctor in a, they get that doctor power and, you know, when I talk to my clients, you have to advocate for yourself. You, you don't give that yeah. right away. Right. The amazing thing is, well, first of all, even among psychiatrists, most of them don't know the literature that well. They really don't. They're sort of, they go through medical school. They're taught this sort of, frankly, they're taught sort of a propagandistic view of medications. They don't read the research literature. They don't know about the long-term literature. They really haven't come to grips with how these drugs affect the brain. So that's the first problem. Even the prescribers really don't have a good sense of the literature. But then something like 80, 85% of psychiatric drugs today are prescribed by GPs, and they have no clue about what the literature really shows. So that's one of the problems is, in, in fact, it's, you know, we've had this story 
a pedal to society about the medications. For a long time, we heard they fixed chemical imbalances in the brain. Well, that was a marketing story, not a science story. And anyway, so this whole process of medicating people quickly, you know, you come into your GP and you're right, doctors are looked up to as these, you know, semi-gods who know everything. Um, but in fact, if you're someone who is considering taking a psychiatric medication, you need to uh, educate yourself because that's the only way you're going to get educated. You're not going to get it in the doctor's office or the psychiatrist's office. So you're right. I mean, you have to advocate for yourself. And so many people don't. I don't know if if they don't think they should have to do that or if they don't know how to do that. But, well, you know, yeah, I should research it. Yeah, but I'm so busy. And that's it's your it's your brain. It's your life. And what I see in my clinic is people that don't want to get on medication or they've been on it. And they were worse off from going on it than they were before they started. And usually what will happen is they'll, say, they'll start having side effects and they'll go to their doctor. And instead of trying to address the root cause of what's causing those side effects, they just, they're given another one, maybe two or three drugs to add to their protocol. Yeah, you know, I just saw something just today about the percentage of people within, with a prescription of a psychiatric drug on an outpatient um, basis. In other words, we're not talking about hospitalized patients. Something like, a, 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 could this be right? A third of them are taking three or more drugs at the same time, psychiatric drugs. Anyway, this goes to, is, <laughs> you know, first of all, it is daunting to try to all of a sudden make yourself an expert on the research. That's not so easy. And two, we're not, we patients aren't really empowered to question our doctors, right? Right. Not sort of say, oh, I'm the one who knows. So you have that problem as well. And then you've you've reached on another problem with the whole use of these drugs. is when they don't work, and they often don't work, and often people do become worse. They develop new side effects. Now, any any sort of good medicine will say, uh-oh, the drug's not working. We need to take it away, okay? That would make sense if you're getting worse on the drug um, or if it's just plain not working. But instead, what, what happens in this country is, A, they up the dose, or B, they switch to another drug, or they add another class of drugs, so you may be taking an antipsychotic and, and an antidepressant, or an antidepressant and an anti-anxiety agent. And it's just, and, and it, it's, from a, from a, any sort of perspective that looks at this, you know, with a broad perspective, that's a story of, of medical failure when you have people going from one drug to the second drug to three drugs and all, that is a story of an iatrogenic, iatrogenic meanings, uh, you know, treatment cause, uh, worsening, an iatrogenic worsened long-term course. And it happens all the time, not to everyone, but it certainly happens with great frequency. And once people start going down this path where they're going down to a second drug or three drug, three drugs, it becomes a real struggle to get back to, you know, not taking the drugs. It's it's a it's a it's a real hard battle to get back to you know square one. Well, I think there's a lot of fear factored into that. You know, they they went on the drugs for for help, and they've been told this is what you need to do. This is the only thing you can do. So, well, if I don't do it, and if I come off of them, what's going to happen? What you know, there's that fear factor. And that's why with your website, you know, Mad in America, 
science, psychiatry, and social justice. I love that tagline because there's got to be, there's got to be some science behind what we do. And, and instead of just writing a prescription or, you know, people will come in and they'll laugh and they'll say, well, you know, I got that magic pill. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about that magic pill because it's not so magic, is it? Yeah, you know, this question about fear is, is so true. And actually, um, you know, people are peddled fear, too. I mean, when people come in and say, I want to go off my medication, they're sort of warned, oh, you'll get, you'll have such a terrible time, you'll get worse. So even when people are trying to do it, they're sort of being put on guard to feel worse and, and to worry and to be afraid. And that's also a reason to stay on the drugs. Now, one of the problems here is <laughs> we sort of refer to this with the very beginning of this conversation is that the drugs do change your brain and your brain goes through this uh, adaptive process, which is what it does when you do a drug of addiction too. Like, the, you know, the illicit drugs, your drug, your body is, your brain is becoming adapting to the presence of that drug. And that's why when you stop taking that drug, say an opiate, say heroin or whatever it might be, you, you can, you know, you have these withdrawal symptoms. Well, the withdrawal symptoms may be Different with SSRIs, antidepressants, or antipsychotics, but it's the same bigger process that your brain has um, become used to the presence of that drug. It's gone through these compensatory adaptations, and then when you remove the drug, your problem is you are going to have withdrawal symptoms, or you're going to be at great risk of having withdrawal symptoms. Not everyone has them, but most people do, and and you're going to see that period of of difficulty of withdrawal as an evidence as evidence that your quote disorder is coming back and doctors will see it that way too but really what is happening so often is you're just having withdrawal symptoms related to you know you're going off the drug it's a drug withdrawal thing not a uh, return of the disorder but there's plenty of room for delusion in that because when you start to feel worse when you come off that is attributed to return of the disorder and why you need to be back on the drug. But, but really, that's part of the whole trap with going on the drug in the first place. Once you're on, it can be really hard to come off. How many, what percent of people do you think are able to come off of the, their drugs successfully and stay off? Well, it depends how quickly they do it and what type of drug you're talking about, which class of drug. I think there's a pretty high percentage of people who who actually stop taking their antidepressants within the first few months and probably do okay. I mean, a majority of those people, I think, can get off and they haven't been on the drug that long. But what you do see, whenever you see about this, is about 50% of people who go on an antidepressant end up staying on it, okay? So they don't get off in that first three, four months. And it's that group then that, longer term is going to have trouble getting off. And it's that group also that often ends up on a second antidepressant or a second class of drug, polypharmacy, et cetera, as they go on. So one of the things to answer to your question is there's a lack of good studies about the very question you asked. It's like what percentage of people who start an antidepressant are still on the drug two years later. It could be as much as 50%, but I think that data came from Sweden, if I remember, or Finland, something like that. And then the question is, how you know, how many people who've been on the drugs for, say, two, three years 
experience withdrawal symptoms. Well, the longer you're on, it seems, the more likely you're going to be to experience withdrawal symptoms. So you can't just say, like, oh, 50% of people on the antidepressant are going to have withdrawal symptoms because I think it's it's so dependent upon, A, how long you've been on the drug, and B, whether you were just on one drug or whether you're on multiple drugs. But you're really getting into this question of it's, it's, it's a little bit of a black hole about the whole risks of withdrawal, who gets affected, and, and, and what are all the factors that um, affect whether one another, what are the likelihood of experiencing withdrawal symptoms. Well, just from a medical standpoint, what is the responsibility? And and I'm very blessed. I haven't been on any prescription drugs, and I feel like nobody in my family is. And although I can remember when I moved back to Dallas, and I went one of the first times I went over to my mom's just to kind of help her do some things, and I saw all these pills on her kitchen table, and I said, "Mom, because I've been gone 20 years." Mom, what is all this? Well, this is my medication, and this is Jack's medication. Well, Jack, was I knew he was taking lithium. And I said, well, how do you know which is yours, and how do you know which is his? Oh, we just know. And at that point, I'll never forget, I'll be right back. I went down, and I'm like, okay, I bought a pink box and a blue box, and let's keep them, <laughs> let's color code them. But, right. you know, I'm like, are you even sure that you need all this? And she was like, well, my doctor put me on them and so that was you know I'm like well how about if we stop and we you know we ask some questions and and she was very willing to do it but I will tell you this she was a brilliant woman but she would have not have done that without being you know without having that queued up for her because her doctor gave them to him and and I don't know I don't know how bad or how good it was, uh, you know, I, I I don't know. I have my opinion, but opinions should be kept to yourself. I do know that. <laughs> but, you know, when, when, you, when you talk to people or when I talk to people about medication, I'm very careful about what I say because I'm not licensed to manage meds, don't want to be. Um, it, but I do know that it should, my one statement is, it should never be the first line of treatment for anything that's going on in the brain. Do you agree or disagree with that? For anything going on in the brain or in the body, in the brain, you're saying? In the brain. Well, certainly, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm, here's, I'm not sure I would say never. Like, there may be some times when people are having a manic episode, they need something right away to help them calm down or sleep or that sort of thing. Uh, and the same with a psychotic episode. There may, be an, there may be an emergency need for these drugs. But I think any use of these drugs, and then we can even talk about, you know, the larger sort of panoply of drugs that are now being, you know, used and prescribed, um, is that... You know, drugs do have risk-benefit <laughs> equations, and the risk-benefit may be one. There may be one equation for short-term use, where the risks aren't so great, and you can see more benefits. Like, let's say you're just you haven't slept for a few days, you need to sleep. Well, a sleeping pill may be a very good thing in that case. Um, or if you get too ramped up with you know a manic episode, there may be a time you just need to calm down and 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 that, and that sort of thing. 
But the risk-benefit equation really shifts the longer you use a drug that's on the brain. And actually, it shifts for other drugs as well. But that's the thing here that we don't have a medical establishment or that we don't have any scientific process for really making that longer risk-benefit equation as part of what we think about. Because what happens, of course, is drugs are tested for, you know, six weeks or whatever. And if they, quote, knock down the symptoms of a disorder a little better than placebo, the FDA says, go ahead and use them. Now, one of the problems is society says, oh, the FDA has found these drugs to be safe and effective. That's not true. What the FDA trial process done is said, okay, you've shown that you can knock down the symptoms of a of a disorder better than placebo to some degree uh, over this six-week period, and, and we're going to call that effectiveness. And as far as the risk, we're going to warn about the risk that showed up in those trials. But we're not actually going to make it a, a decision of whether uh, a drug is more likely to give a benefit than that overrides the risk. That's up to the doctor and to the patient. But people think the FDA is saying this drug is good for you. That's not what they're doing. And one of the things, you you know, that people, it would really be helpful in terms of becoming an informed consumer if you understood something called the number needed to treat. So, for say example, that again. Bob, is, say that is again. to know what's something called the number needed to treat. Okay. So, for example, um, with antidepressants, you see different things, but it seems like you've got to treat six to seven people to have one additional response. So let's say the NNT, I think, is seven for antidepressants. That means six to seven people would have done just as well on, 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 on placebo. And, the, and it, it really is, you get three groups with any drug treatment. Let's say with antidepressants. You get a group that responds. You get a group that stays the same. And then you have a group that maybe worsens on the drug. And what they're saying is the only separation is you get maybe one out, you get like 14% more out of 100 people, there's 14 that have a positive response that wouldn't have had a, such a response if they just weren't given the drug. That means you got to treat seven people with the drug to produce one additional benefit. But that also means for the other six, you're going to be exposed to the adverse effects of this drug, those risks without any additional benefit. And so, literally, if you had an informed consumer group, you'd come to your, your, you know, your GP or whatever, and you'd say, hey, I'm, I'm depressed or whatever. And they'd say, okay, here's your number needed to treat with this. Over the short term, you have a one in seven chance of having a, a significant response with the drug that you wouldn't have with placebo. The rest, it's the same. So... Now I would say to myself, do I really want it? Is, is that enough to have? But if I take the drug, I'm going to get exposed to the adverse effects, and I only have a one in seven chance of getting a benefit. Maybe if I were told that story, which is in the data, <laughs> I would decide that's not a good a good risk of odds. Well, let me but ask you a question. You never hear that, right? You never hear about NMTs. <laughs> Need, no, never needed to treat. You never do. And, and my question is: Is do you think the doctors know the story? No, I don't. Okay, because that's you know, kind of, you, yeah, yeah. Like if you actually look, at, you know, Lee, it's really interesting. If you look at the spectrum of outcomes, there's something called. I know we're going to lose your audience a little bit here, but there's something called effect sizes. And effect sizes with um, with uh, uh, antidepressants, I think, are about 0.3. And if you did a spectrum of outcomes, in other words, in terms of 
change in symptoms for those on placebo versus those on drug, they're almost exactly the same. There's just, there's about a little shift in favor of, 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 of the drug treated group. And what they'll say with an effect size of 0.3 is about there's an 86% overlap in the outcomes. There's just that one in seven difference. But no one hears it that way. What they hear is this drug is safe and effective and you're going to get a response that you don't with placebo. And that's just not true. That's not what the evidence shows. But do I think doctors understand that? No. I don't. Well, and I think that's what the problem is. 99% of patients don't understand it either. Well, and 99% of patients don't even think that they have the right to question their doctor based upon the people that, that come into the brain performance center, you know, they'll, I'll say, well, did you ask them why? Or did you, you know, did you ask questions? Well, they just told me I needed it. And, and you know, when it, you mentioned sleep earlier and yeah, you do need to sleep. I mean, if you're not able to sleep, then life is disruptive on, on all levels. And, and I think that when we feel like we don't have a choice, then we'll do it. But, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to be kicking the can um, on doctors. I have nothing negative to say. I think they, you know, I think it's a, a great profession. I'm just saying that, that I think that we, sometimes we all have to take the responsibility for educating ourselves. And I'll tell you this, when I opened my practice back in 2009, my biggest resistors were medical doctors because They've never heard of neurofeedback. A general practitioner, they've never been trained in the brain. They have no idea. I think pharmacology is the biggest training source for all the new doctors in the last, when I say new, I mean like in the last 20 years, um, because for the last 20 years, we've been hoping and praying and wishing that we're going to get this synthetic chemical that we're going to concoct and it's going to make life, you know, it's going to solve a lot of problems for people. And certainly the intent is there. There's nothing, no questioning the intent behind the the medication. But I, sometimes I think it requires a lot more than intent to have a sustainable solution. We've got a couple of minutes before we go to break. Let's leave people. What do we want the thought that we want to leave people with from the first half of the break? Well, I think actually you One minute. touched upon or you you've touched upon it. They need to take responsibility for being their own advocate. Unfortunately, you can't just go to the doctor's office and, and just say they'll know what is best for me. You really have to become an informed consumer. Uh, and that's too bad, but that's I think the message. You really have to do some research when you go into that doctor's office, especially if you're thinking that you may end up with a psychiatric drug. Well, thank you. I think we both left him with the same thought, and and <laughs> that's pretty. That's a that's a nice occurrence when that happens. So you know, I have lots of questions. And how did you get? What made you start investigating all this? And what kind of made you start to question things? So well, when we come back from break, I hope you'll be able to share a little bit of of your personal journey. And and I don't know if it was a family member or if it was something you read or saw, but I'd love to understand, understand more about what got you going down this path. Sure. Um, we'll sort of talk about that. We'll be back after these messages. 
close your eyes and imagine living your life without limits. Where would you go? Who would you meet? What would you do? During an Uncover Your Hidden Genius session, you will discover what's keeping you from living your life with purpose, passion, and fulfillment of your potential. You'll get a clear vision of the steps you need to take to uncover your hidden genius so that you can live a life without limits. Sessions can be done over the phone, Skype, or in person. Find out more at www.JoyceBufordEmpowers.com or by calling 903-287-0747. It's words you've never heard. There's nothing like a high-profile court case to grab our attention. My mother was a court reporter, and she would frequently share funny things that happened during a trial. An easygoing judge would often let off the pop and jays or repeat offenders. My mother would sometimes whisper to the judge, He'll never learn if you keep letting him off. Once in a while, the judge would reconsider and order the pop and jay to the calaboose or jail. The court reporter records everything, including funny and embarrassing statements made by witnesses. Here's a statement made by a defendant accused of theft. Did you get a good look at my face when I took your purse? What's a word for the natural tendency to put your foot in your mouth? Dantopodology. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back, and we've spent the first part of the show, and and, and it's nice because we've been agreeing on how important it is for each of us to be our own advocate. And it's uh, sorry to say, but nobody's going to take care of you. You have to do it for yourself. So, and you know, Bob, you've been you started as an author back in 2010. You re, you wrote a book. You received an award for investigative reporters and editors. What prompted you to write that book? Did it start before then, or did something happen? Yeah, this really came out. It actually goes all the way back to 1998. So when I was a medical reporter, you know, I uh, and I was a medical reporter at covering medicine at the Albany Times Union, and this was when the SSRIs, the antidepressants, were coming to market in the early 90s. And, you know, I wrote about how they fixed chemical imbalances in the brain and they were breakthrough medications. And the reason I wrote about that is because that's what, you know, the experts were telling me. And then what what happened actually is um, I left daily reporting and I went to work for, for Harvard Medical School as the director of publications. And one of the things that was happening in the 90s was this idea that, oh, the prescribing of medications and treatments has to be evidence-based. Now, the idea of evidence-based medicine is that doctors can be deluded about the merits of their therapy. So going forward, I then became aware, uh, I, I started a company that looked at the clinical testing of new drugs. This is the mid-90s. And we were we were do, filing reports on the testing of new drugs. Um, and I became aware that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies were basically designing their trials to make their new drugs look good, and they were spinning results, and they were paying academic doctors to serve as their speakers and consultants. And that was leading to this gap between what the science really showed and what was being told to the public. 
So I then did a series for the Boston Globe on sort of this corruption of research in clinical drug trials. That was in 1998, and I was looking at psychiatric drug trials because we had had all these new supposedly great drugs come to market, first the antidepressants, then the antipsychotics, and I just wrote about how in the trials, these drugs actually didn't perform very well, but then when this commercial influence got in, got into swing, they were promoted to the uh, you know the public as these breakthrough medications. But then while I was doing that research, and this is what set me, when I was doing that series for the Boston Globe, and this is what set me off on writing books about this. My first book was a book called Mad American 2002, was I came upon research that, well, first of all, at that time, I believed that uh, the drugs fix chemical imbalances in the brain. And I was doing a lot of writing about antipsychotics at that time, and supposedly I was told that schizophrenia has, is due to too much dopamine in the drugs by blocking dopamine, uh, bring bring dopamine activity back into balance, and therefore the drugs like insulin for diabetes. So I asked researchers, can you tell me where you found that people with schizophrenia actually have too much dopamine? And I swear to God, people said, well, we didn't actually find that. We just tell them that because that's a... That, don't, that that provides a sort of sound bite that makes them understand why they have to take the drugs. And I said, well, okay, how about the antidepressants? Where did you find that people with uh, depression had had too little serotonin? And I said, well, we didn't really find that either. It's Again, it's sort of a marketing uh, slogan. And the, I even went to scientists at the companies that, 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 you know, sold these drugs, and they told me the same thing. So... I got into this just as a journalist, and I was a journalist who felt a little bit embarrassed that I had been telling the story about drugs that fix chemical imbalances in the brain. That's the late 1990s, but in fact, that wasn't true. And that was sort of the introduction for me that there was this story out there that psychiatry was telling to the public that may be not consistent with the science actual underlying science. And then there, I came upon two studies that made me write Mad in America. This book was published in 2002. And here were the two studies. One were, were, were studies by the World Health Organization, which twice found that people diagnosed with schizophrenia by Western doctors uh, in three poor countries, developing countries, India, Nigeria, and Colombia, had much, much better outcomes than people so diagnosed in the U.S. and other rich countries. And they actually concluded that living in a developed country is a strong predictor you won't have a good outcome if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I thought, well, why would that be? <laughs> why would be living in a developed country be, uh, you know, a, a, a predictor of a poor outcome? And then here's where my mind really got blown, or my understanding of psychiatric drugs got blown, is after the first such study, the World Health Organization hypothesize maybe the reason for the better outcomes in the poor countries of the world is that patients there were more medication compliant. They took their antipsychotics more regularly, which is a valid hypothesis. The drugs are supposed to be so essential. But what they found is that in the poor countries, the doctors used the drugs acutely but not chronically. In other words, they prescribed them for a short period of time, but they didn't maintain their schizophrenia patients on the drugs long-term. Only 16% were maintained on the drugs. So suddenly there was this study where outcomes were much, much better, where they used antipsychotics in a different way than they are used in the United States. So that stunned me. And then I came across um, studies by Harvard Medical School researchers 
which found that outcomes for schizophrenia patients in the United States had declined in the last 15 years, and we're now, and this is at the end of the 1990s, and we're now no better than they had been in the first third of the 20th century, from 1900 to 1933, which was before the advent of the drugs, when they were doing things like giving people showers and all sorts of crazy therapies. So I got into this as a journalist who, for a long period of time, had been writing sort of what is the common understanding, and then I came to understand that what is told to the public is so at, at, is so at odds with, with what is actually in the science. So I wrote a book called uh, A Mad in America, which was about the treatment of the seriously mentally ill in the United States and our bad outcomes. And then after I wrote that book, I wrote a couple of other books not about psychiatry, but people kept asking me, what, what's happening to the children? And how come we're having so many bipolar patients? And how come it seems like depression is on the rise? And that's why I wrote that next book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, that you mentioned, which looked at something different. What I did in that book is look at, well, what is science telling us about the long-term impact of these drugs? We have these drug tests for testing, you know, the, the drugs over six weeks funded by the drug companies. But what happens to people who are on the drugs one year, two years, five years, and ten years? And what I found when I looked at that research, and there is some research stretching across like 65 years, is the evidence is pretty overwhelming that on the whole, in the aggregate, Long-term use of these medications increases the chronicity of the disorder, meaning people are more likely to remain symptomatic. They're more likely to have some functional impairments. And, and frankly, they're more likely to end up with um, worsening symptoms as well. So um, that book caused a stir because it really was the first real effort to look at what is science telling us about the long-term impact of these drugs. And the most amazing thing about that is even going back to the 80s, when researchers are beginning to see this increased chronicity, they came forth with a biological explanation for why this would be so. So not only do you see research showing this increased chronicity, you then see people saying, well, we think we know why. It's because the drugs are causing this change in the brain. So that's how I got into it. It wasn't family history. It wasn't a personal history. It was really from a journalistic point of view that my job as a journalist is to inform the public of what the science actually says and not just sort of parrot whatever propaganda is being told. And, and, and it took over my life, actually. I've been doing this now for on and off for 20-some years. What do you think if you were to write that, that? You wrote that book in 2010. It's 2022. If you were to write that book today, do you think it would be any different? Yes, it would. That's a great question. And unfortunately, the, the, the evidence sort of supporting that finding has just has just gotten more and more overwhelming. So, yeah, it, one of the things the book did do is it stirred some researchers to start asking that question about long-term outcomes. And we have a number of studies around antipsychotics that reinforce that chronic thing. We have a number of studies that have been published around antidepressants showing the increased chronicity of depressive symptoms. Uh, there's even been more talk about the biological cause. Uh, people looking at the long-term effects of stimulants in 2015, they concluded there's just no evidence they improve functioning of children in any domain. They grow up over the long term. So, unfortunately, 
and I, I, I mean this tragically, the, the research literature is so much more robust now than it was when I was doing the reporting on long-term outcomes in 2008, 2009 for that 2010 book. I did do a, um, an updated version, I think it was in 2015, and there were a number of new studies that um, you know, fit into that story. And now here it is in 2022, and the research just keeps piling up. I mean, it's it's um, it's 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 tragic when you think about the percentage of people on these drugs long term. I mean, I wish it were I wish it weren't the case. I I wish it weren't the case. The book was wrong, but it's not. No, that's the that's the that's the unfortunate part and the tragic part. And you know, really, the the worst is when you see that more and more kids are being induct, you know, they're being shoved into this drug using pipeline at early ages. And by the time we have kids in college, something like 25 to 30% have a diagnosis and they're using these drugs. So the tragedy in that way just keeps growing. Let's talk about that because, you know, it used to be the catch-all. Everybody had ADHD or ADD. If you couldn't sit still in class, if you if you looked at something that was going on outside the window, you're easily distracted. If you you know if you didn't do exactly what you were supposed to do in a classroom, you were termed ADHD. You go to your your, your pediatrician, your GP, and they say that you need to be put on medication: Adderall, Ritalin, concern, I don't know. There's, a, there's yeah, yeah. A, a lot of them. But one of the things that I've experienced through my clients is the way that insurance processes that. And I had one client and she would say, if I, and if I get my Adderall at CVS, it affects him this way. If I get my Adderall at Walgreens, it affects him this way. And she was asking me why. And I said, well, that's a really good question. Unfortunately, I'm not the person that can answer that question, but, you know, but I did, I said, let's, I'll help you because that's, that's important to understand. And the understanding that we came out with was it's because there's so many different genetic combinations that sometimes you may be thinking you're getting something and you get it from a different drugstore and you're getting something totally different. How do you, how do we deal with that? You mean under the same brand name? They shouldn't be getting well, something under totally different well, they the do, same brand. They do have it, it. You're right. It's not you know. It's not Adderall. It's it's a generic for Adderall. Um, right. But people, you can't pronounce those names half the time anyway. <laughs> and, yeah. And and again, people don't don't really look at it. All they know is that when I get it here, it makes him all jumpy, and when I get it here, it helps him focus. Um. So, but yeah, you're right. Really, it, I mean, it's not it, the same it, brand name. Yeah, and it might also be different dosages too. I don't know, uh, but yeah, you know, the generics are supposed to be equivalents, but sometimes the generics. And I'm not an expert on this, but I think they have, you know, the generics often are manufactured in I don't know, like India and all that sort of thing. And they may have different sort of other, you know, there's the active ingredients, but drugs are always having other sort of stabilizing agents, and maybe they have different stabilizing agents in them. I don't know. Um, Do you but, think that's something that, that's you know, worth researching? It probably is, but this is an area that I guess in a way I'm surprised 
I would think that they would be taking the same dosage of the generic as with the brand name. Um, but maybe they're getting switched to something that's not quite the same. I, I really don't know, but it, it, I, this is actually the first time I've really heard of this particular thing. So I should just be quiet because I don't well, really no, have an informed That actually makes me feel a lot better, Bob, <laughs> that you haven't <laughs> okay. heard of it. No, I haven't. I mean, I've certainly heard of you know, people having all sorts of different responses to different drugs, for sure. Or, you know, different people having different responses to the same drug. It can be so idiosyncratic. Um, so I, I really don't know the answer, though, to what you've posed here, to why it would be any different from one drugstore to the next. Well, what concerns you most about the future for the drugs? You know, we, you mentioned the young kids, and I immediately thought of all the young kids that are given ADHD drugs. What do you think is going to happen to those? Do you do you see depression? Do you see anxiety? Do you see what do you see coming for along children. for the children? Yeah, I think this is the most um, important part of this whole sort of societal, you know, what's happening to our society and that or what our society, society really needs to address. And that is, do we really want to be uh, diagnosing our kids, giving them a label, and then treating them with drugs? Is that, a, is that helpful to the kids, or is it just basically what you're seeing is that there's a part of our population that the drug companies turned into customers and lifelong customers? And by the way, they're now saying you could, that, Two and three year olds have ADHD and they can be diagnosed and they need stimulants. Oh my um, gosh. I think it, it, yeah, it's horrific. Listen, all the all the data shows all sorts of problems related to uh, taking drugs from an early age. Everything from brain development, social development, physical health, mental development, emotional development. It's 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 all all the data shows that you're increasing the risk of people becoming impaired some way if they hit adulthood. Now, some kids manage to write it out. It just shows how resilient the human body can be and the human brain can be. And But part of the, the harm also comes from getting people to think of themselves as abnormal, thinking of themselves as having some neurodevelopmental disorder like ADHD that they're not normal, or they got bipolar, or they got depression, or they have some other thing. And that becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. It becomes how they see themselves and they sort of organize their future around that self-conception. And it's just, it's a, it's a tragic thing to hang on a kid when he's like 8, 10, 12, 14, that there's something uh, abnormal about them or dysfunctional about them. They're going to have to cope with this for life. When really, what is, it's quite clear they got swept up in a, in a commercial enterprise to medicate more of our kids to expand the market. And what it bothers me so much is that there's no evidence. First of all, even over the short term, the drugs often don't work. Like antidepressants don't work in kids over the short term. They don't be placebo. Um, antipsychotics, when they did a trial to see if people, children could even stand for a year, they had so many negative effects. That wasn't good. And when they did the, the, the big study on stimulants, yeah, they found a little bit of benefit in school at the end of 14 months, but at the end of three years, they found that those kids who stayed on stimulants, being on medication was a marker of deterioration, not a benefit. And at the end of six years, the drug-treated group was more likely to be functionally impaired, have greater ADHD symptoms, 
um, more delinquency, that sort of thing. So what you see when you look at the medicating of kids, you see that it was born of, you know, a desire by drug companies to expand their market for these drugs. They paid uh, academic psychiatrists to help them build that market, and they were successful at it. And all you see is, you just see harm everywhere. You see uh, a significant percentage of kids now seeing themselves as mental patients growing up under that, and then arriving in adulthood with a, uh, a diagnosis and a drug. And we have had at Mad in America a website, we've had hundreds and hundreds of personal stories by people who were first diagnosed and medicated as kids. And they talk about how it stole the sort of their, their future from them because their future became defined by this... Um, the use of those drugs and that sort of self-conception. And now the people who write for us talk about having broken free of that, um, you know, pathway. But they're bitter about it, and they really feel that their lives were diminished by this diagnosis and uh, prescribing of medications. I think I mean, it's going to harm, it is harming our society. Look where we are today. Yeah, we've had two years of pandemic. But all the markers of mental distress in our society, particularly among the young, just keep going up and up and up. So you can suicide yeah, just, rates are going up. I mean, suicide rates have climbed since 2000, steadily year after year after yep. year. So yep. if you see all this, you see more kids needing help, more kids. Uh, you know, just you see the burden going up and up and up. It tells you that what we've been doing isn't working. And here's what's frustrating for me: you see. Where, where in there's, when there's been efforts to change the environment for kids, change the school environment, change, give, help them learn better dietary patterns, help them get sleep, change what their school day is like, have exercise, get them more involved socially, <laughs> away from the Internet, by the way. Those <laughs> things work. Those things always work when you change the environment and you make the environment more nurturing, more challenging, more curiosity-provoking, more sort of co- where a way you can form social bonds. Those things always work. But do we put our money behind that? We don't. We just don't see them embraced as the answer. Well, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, you know, the simple things. Well, think about your, your basic health. How, what's your diet like? What's your sleep like? Like what? Do, how do you exercise? I mean, I was amazed Going through the pandemic, we, you know, we were all so stressed out because so many of us, the way we went to school and the way that we worked was changed. It was all online. And Microsoft did a study and showed if you just take a 10-minute break in between all those meetings, what, how that can reset the brain. And, I mean, it's so simple. Take a break. We don't need, we don't need things to, to make it happen for us. We need to learn how to make it happen for ourselves. And you you had mentioned earlier your website, and we've got about five minutes. Let's, let's talk about that website because to read some of those stories as a parent, I would find that very enlightening. And, you know, to read how other people, what they've dealt with and, and what they learned from it. I know, I mean, and I know your website's global. I know you've got Brazil and Canada and Finland and Italy and Sweden. And I mean, you're all over the world. 
So for, for the average listener out there that wants to learn more, where would they start on the website? Well, yeah, the first thing I go, it's madinamerica.com. And what you'll see is, it's, so we started this website with the idea that our society needs, that the current paradigm of care has failed, and we as a society need to rethink that. And we set up the website to do this in several ways. One, for people to tell their stories, because personal stories are so powerful. Two, to have, you know, experts, professionals, counselors, parents and all write blogs about, you know, their ideas about what we could do better and also focus on alternatives to the drugs so they show that there are things that can be done, initiatives that are working. And um, so it was meant, it's meant to be a form for rethinking psychiatric care for all of society. And as part of that, we have all these resources. So you can go on and find uh, information about the long-term effects of drugs, of antipsychotics, antidepressants, stimulants. And what, what those resource pages do is they provide summaries of the actual uh, findings, especially with long-term outcomes, and they, can, they go with links back to the actual study. So you can use it to research and make yourself aware. And we also have uh, resource pages on different alternatives, that sort of thing. So really what our web, and it, we have it for children as well. We have it for adults and children. So if you're a, a parent who want to research stimulants for ADHD, we have a section on, well, what did the research show? We also have research on, on how these drugs affect the brain and how the brain changes. So the purpose of the website is, A, to be a form for rethinking this current paradigm of care. And, and frankly, we have science news every day that shows, I told you that one of my things as a journalist is we have the propaganda out there, and the science actually is telling a very different story. So we bring that science that generally isn't reported in the mainstream media, and we have we put it on our front page every day. And so you can go there and you can research, for example, about something called tardive dysphoria, which is drug-induced long-term chronic symptoms of depression. So we bring forth the science, we provide a forum for discussion, and we provide resources for informed consent, making informed choices about psychiatric drugs. And what's interesting, as you said, we now have affiliate sites in 10 countries. We have two more countries joining us. And the reason is, it's in country after country, this drug-first paradigm of care has failed. You see uh, the burden of mental disorders going up in every country. By the way, there's a recent mental world report on mental health that found that mental health is now the worst in English-speaking countries, which have really adopted this paradigm of care we're talking about. So... Uh, you see this groundswell of grassroots activity saying we've got to rethink this. What we've been doing with the drug-first approach just hasn't been working. We're seeing worsening mental health, so it's time for society to do something different. And hopefully what our website and these other website affiliate sites do is, A, they provide individual with resources uh, to make individual decisions, and B, though they can then enter this larger discussion of, what should we be doing differently? Like, what sort of, how can we change our schools? How important is diet? What sort of exercise programs can you have and that sort of thing? So that's what we do with our website. And we have about, yeah. Go ahead. We have about 4 million visitors a year. So we're, 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 we're well, attracting more and more people. 
The numbers speak loudly. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. And, and you know, this is the type of information that people need to access. They just don't know how. Madinamerica.com. Very easy to use. I encourage you all to visit it. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.